know is I miss you. I miss us. Well, you know, Dr. Strange is about to hit theaters pretty soon. You may be surprised to hear this, but if I can't see that movie with you, I won't see it. Won't be the same. I don't want to pressure you. It's just how I feel. All you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 205 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the infinite chessboard episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that on an infinite chessboard, a knight can reach exactly 205 squares within four moves. And with that wonderful little bit of infinite chessboard knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident employee, Sony employee. <laughs> it's like I'm the custodian that just happens to... the I'm the S, Tim, the SLS cast custodian. Uh, right place, right time, Tim. That's what we call it. Yes, in the in the hot state that is California, it is as hot as Fourth of July. No joke. We're here day after the election. It, it got up to ninety degrees here in November, so that was kind of crazy. But I I, I really wanted to ask you, how do you win at infinite chess if it is infinite? It's an infinite chessboard. So I presume that... Would you have to play it, like, in an infinity pool? I, I mean, I, maybe? I guess, you know, you, you can just choose at what point you want your bishop to stop and hope that they forget that it's that far out there, you know. Um, but uh, I don't know. Do you play chess at all? Were you ever a chess whiz? I'm not a chess whiz, but I have won my fair share of chess games. Yeah, like how many? 20? I have only lost one game in the last 15 or 16 years. That I've so played. is this going to turn out to be one of those things where you amaze me with your past professions? Like, are you going to say that you used to count cards, <laughs> used to be a chess shark? You, used, you were in prison. Where um, you, that's where you honed your skill at playing chess. I was never, yeah, um, as much as I would have liked to have been with, um, oh, good Lord, Shawshank Redemption, not Tim Robbins, but... Morgan Freeman? Thank you. As much as I would like to have said that I would have played chess with Morgan Freeman, and I don't know whatever happened to Matthew Quentin, but he beat me at chess every time. Um... (laughs) And that, no, that's that's no... spot on. That's exactly how Morgan Freeman sounds in that movie. <laughs> I I know. I just I play when I play, and um, I only literally I've only lost once in the last fifteen or sixteen years that I've played, and it was because I underestimated my opponent. So, but I, I don't know chess. I, I play chess when it, when the opportunity happens. So I don't know. 
few games a year. So it's not like I'm sitting there playing on the weekends. You know, Lawrence Fishburne sitting on the other side of it. Come on, Bobby Fisher. You got it. Yeah. I mean, you know. I don't, I don't know you're raking many, in the movie. I don't know, I don't, lyric, I don't know how quotes. many movies regarding chess have to have the random black guy that you play against, but apparently I am quoting them all. So. I can only think of two movies about chess, and one of them was based in Africa, and it came out this year, which we actually we didn't get a chance and to so, see. And, and so how many black people do they have to play against? Oh, that's terrible. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I guess that's not really a fair comparison because it, you know in Africa naturally, but yeah, that one's with the girl though, right? It's a it's a girl who learns to play chess, Queen of Katawe or Princess of Katawe, something like that, yeah. based on a true story apparently, and it's supposed to be great. Disney Ooh. Disney actually decided to put out a good movie. Uh, it's it's a good live action movie, so you're not dealing with any Max Keeble's big moves or anything like that. Uh, wow, that I actually pulled that out uh, out of my ass, and I think Max Keeble's big move came out like in two thousand and two. I can't hey. really think of any more recent live action Disney movies that did well. That's not Marvel <laughs> or, or Operation Dumbo Drop, right? Operation um, Dumbo, yeah. All the really obscure, uh, uh, reaching way back there, you yeah. know, Herbie Meet fully the Deedles. <laughs> I think one George of the Jungle Disney maybe maybe not. I no, remember. I don't think so. I think that one was 20th Century Fox. But other than that, how are you doing? Is your school semester winding down a little bit since it's November? No, I made a terrible mistake, <laughs> as as Job would say in Arrested Development. I made a huge mistake. I made a terrible mistake. Um, and I shouldn't have picked the classes that I picked. It, the workload is just ridiculous. So. Like, any one of them on their own would be fine, and perhaps maybe two of them, but these particular four classes are just insane. So, no, nothing is calming down for me. What about you? I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) I I got a weird winter cold going on, but it's not winter. Like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's 90 degrees, it's hot outside, and... I, I, I'm sitting in swimming trunks. Like, that's all I'm wearing right now are, are swimming trunks, a McDonald Drumpf again hat, and earphones. That, that's it. That, that is it. That, that is how <laughs> toasty it is here. Wow. No, we, we're, we're uh, rocking a high of, like, 73 or 74 today, um, and it's supposed to get down to 57 tonight. Ooh. So, yes, Texas is in the weird texas california has done this weird flip thing and temperature wise so it was because trump won the weather was like we're gonna we're gonna give it to texas (laughs) (laughs) did did you vote for trump here's a break in the weather yeah (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) anyways do you have news of the weird I do have some news of the weird, and I have news of the weird that has nothing to do with election in any way, shape, or form, so that we can just move on and get to the cool stuff. Uh, and it goes a little something like this from usatoday.com by way of Kevin Robinson uh, and the Pensacola, Florida News Journal. Ex-deputy apologizes with 
Sorry I tased you, Kate text. <laughs> yes, yes, you heard that right. Out of Pensacola, Florida, a Florida woman has filed a civil lawsuit against a former Escambia County deputy. Gee, you think, former? <laughs> with, with, with the brain firing on all the cylinders here, I can. I don't know how this guy got fired. Former Escambia County deputy who allegedly discharged a stun gun into her chest and neck without provocation tried to cover up the incident, then apologized with a texted picture of an off-color cake. Now, Tim, I would like for you to please note uh, the level of artistry here. Uh, I have just sent you the link to the article. Um, and I want you to please describe for me the picture that you see when you pull up this article here, because is is that not just the highest level of art? I mean, like this guy needs to be on Ace of Cakes with a quickness. Well, one of the guys looks like a very thin Mr. Bill. <laughs> the blue body, Play-Doh looking body, it's a stick literally with stick figures but the funny the, the cake the stick figures is actually literally the version of, like it's the cop tasing the woman <laughs> that's the funny thing and they're stick figures and they're both smile well no uh the cop's smiling but the woman has a frowny face <laughs> <laughs> yep and the cake and the cake literally reads sorry i tased you ah uh, yeah I like the little comb over he gave himself, because I'm pretty sure he's bald. <laughs> the, uh, the the article is is uh, not I wouldn't say lengthy, but it's definitely worth a read. I just thought it was absolutely hilarious that someone who is already uh, maybe maybe they just thought you know what I can't possibly make the situation any worse. Maybe they'll appreciate the humor in it, and then they were wrong on both counts. <laughs> so, yes, please go to usatoday.com where you can find ex-deputy apologizes with sorry I tased you cake text again uh, by way of Kevin Robinson and the Pensacola, Florida News Journal. That is my news of the weird. Uh, we have no email to read or followers of any form of fashion to mention but if you would like to send us an email please do so by sending us an email to the show at slscast.com and then of course you can also follow us on twitter at the slscast so tim are you ready for the news sir news it up and here we go folks it's the news <laughs> Sexy. Huh? So. Oh, shit. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. First up from me, from Collider.com, by way of Adam Chitwood. Doug Lehman says Edge of Tomorrow 2 is, quote, a sequel that's a prequel, end quote. And in other news of why are they making any additional movies in this franchise, we'll continue the article. 
Tom Cruise is consistent is a consistently reliable performer, and the prospect of the actor teaming up with Emily Blunt and filmmaker Doug Liman or Lehman on a sci-fi film was certainly promising. But Edge of Tomorrow was that rare film that exceeded expectations. The time travel twisting made the narrative compelling. Cruise playing a coward was a terrific subversion of expectations, and Blunt's character having a full, deep arc was tremendously fulfilling. Moreover, Lyman uh, crafted some fantastic-looking sci-fi action and somehow found a way to keep the film feeling fresh, even though it kept showing the audience the same events over and over again. The movie was a sizable hit for Warner Brothers, $370.5 million worldwide, but buoyed by critical raves and a strong showing on home video, clamoring for a sequel has grown louder and louder. Uh, Collider learned earlier this year that Edge of Tomorrow 2 was officially in development with screenwriter Christopher McQuarrie involved, Lehman directing, and Cruz and Blunt returning. So when Collider's own Steve Wintnum recently spoke with Lyman in anticipation of his scripted Supernatural uh, VR series Invisible, the conversation naturally turned to an update of Edge of Tomorrow 2. Uh, and let's see here. And the quote basically here is that that is the only sequel I'm considering doing. And it's because, first of all, the story is so amazing, much better than the original film. And I loved, loved the original film. And second of all, it's a sequel. That's a prequel. End quote. Um, and, and, and the rest of it, the rest of it is a continued, uh, interview. And of course, some speculation on there, but, I go back to the original thing, and Tim, this is where I want you uh, to jump in with your opinion on it. Does this movie need a sequel? I think this is the kind of movie that just needs to be left alone. There doesn't need to be a franchise. There doesn't need to be any prequel action. There doesn't need to be anything. And I don't even understand why you would call something a sequel that's a prequel. Because it's either a prequel or a sequel. Well, I'm a firm believer that they do not need a sequel. But I even think with the first movie, they should have kept the original ending where he dies, or he just... absolutely. Oh, I, we we were definitely in agreement on that. I was very disappointed that he didn't die. So of course, yeah, I, it, the movie doesn't need a sequel. It was its own thing. That's what made it unique. And I just why not? I don't know. Like make like a spirited or am I saying that right? The spir- a spirited sequel or spiritual successor or. No, I don't know. Is that like... Well, spiritual successor is... um, Because I think that's what they called uh, Richard Linkletter's... uh, His 80s movie that came out about the college folk. Uh, Yeah. It was like the spirited spirited sequel. sequel. Yeah, Yeah, spiritual successor is what what you're thinking of. It's where basically it's the same themes, um, it's the same ideas, but it's not the same story, it's not the same actors, so they call it the spiritual successor maybe something like that it's just like i i don't know like i i'm i like i want to see new stuff and we're getting new uh you know original new content this year which is kind of nice seeing all that in the movie theater i I don't know it's just that doesn't seem like a franchise to me agreed agreed all right sir what do you got for us because i've only got two pieces of news so that was one. All right, from SlashFilm.com, new Willy Wonka movie might be an origin story because who doesn't want to know where Willy Wonka came from? This is written by Angie Han, and it says this. A few weeks ago, we got word of another Willy Wonka movie in the works from Warner Brothers with Harry Potter's David Heyman producing. So naturally, when I had the chance to sit down with Heyman at the recent Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them junket, I had to ask him about it. 
During our conversation, Heyman offered a minor status update, offering hints about what the movie might be, hint, not a remake, and explaining why he wanted to make a new Willy Wonka movie in the first place. Heyman was quick to emphasize that his movie won't just be another rehash of the same familiar tale, saying, quote, It's not a remake. They've done two films quite different, but it's possibly an origin story. We're just in the early stages of it, working with a writer called Simon Rich, which is wonderful, end quote. But with two high-profile Willy Wonka movies already in existence, why bother returning to the same character? Heyman continued, saying, quote, I'm a huge Raw Doll fan. I've been trying to work on doll material for quite some time, but they're all tied up. So when this was suggested, I didn't take a moment to pause and want to jump right in, end quote. Although the new film will be based on Dahl's famous character, it's not expected to draw from existing Dahl books. Dahl books, not Dahl books. Yeah, Dahl, Dahl, not Dahl books. <laughs> While Heyman didn't offer too many concrete plot details, he hinted that the movie might explore other periods of Willy Wonka's life. Quote, it's challenging because you don't have Dahl. You don't have a Dahl book, and yet you have a Dahl character but I think there's a lot in this character that suggests who he is and also where he might come from or what his childhood or his middle age might have been like. So we're exploring that. We're discussing it. We're in the very early stages and very excited about what lies ahead. End all quotes there. Again, that article was from SlashFilm.com. New Willy Wonka movie might be an origin story written by Angie Han. I don't know how I feel about this, personally, because I can't think of really how many Willy Wonka books there are, but I know there's a sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think it's called, like, Charlie and the Glass Elevator, or something like that. Uh, maybe there are two sequels? I don't know. Why not do sequels? They don't have to be the Tim, like, the Tim Burton version. They don't have to be the Gene Wilder version. But it, it could just be a sequel, you know? Kind of like what they did with Alice in Wonderland. Just not as bad. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you like the idea of exploring Wonka's origins, or do you like it vague? I, yeah, I don't... I think this is one of those things that just needs to be left alone. Um... And the reason why is because it's just too divisive, and therefore it's never really going to get the traction that it needs. I, I would say that something of this ilk probably needs, really and truly, another 20 or 30 years before they even think about doing something like this. Because it'll be far enough removed that no one will really care about the Johnny Depp version, and most people will be dead who really cared about the Gmail version, so. And really quick, I want to get your opinion on another film that Bob Weinstein is wanting to make. What what possibly could, could you think that they're going to be making a movie of? It's not a board game, uh, and it's geared towards, I think, girls for the most part. Though I think I remember boys having these as well. Um... It's not a board game. Correct. It's not a it's not a comic book? No. But it was a, it's a toy. Is it it was a toy. Yes. Mainly for girls. To my knowledge there was no like TV show about them or anything like that. It was like a new toy. I think it came from Asia 
I don't know. Will I know the answer when you tell it? Will I be like, oh, I can't believe this. I can't. Uh, Think I don't of know, man. It, it looks like a gremlin. And it talks to you. Furbies? AFM Bob Weinstein unveils Furby movie for TWC Dimension. This is written by Dave McNary of Variety. And it says this. Bob Weinstein has unveiled an ambitious slate of five films for TWC Dimension label, including a movie based on Hasbro's Furby toy line. Oh, okay. Maybe it was an American-made toy. I don't know. Uh, I, all I know is that my sister had one, and that fucker was kept in a closet, locked up, because it spoke, like, five years sitting in there. Uh, he said, quote, I'm rolling the dice and playing for hits, end quote, Weinstein said in the early evening presentation at Casa de Mar before about 100 buyers at the American film market. All five projects have completed scripts. It was the first announcement about the Furby movie. Hasbro executives Stephen Davis and Josh Feldman told the audience that the Furby film will be a live-action and CGI hybrid Furbies, the owl-like robotic toys with speaking capabilities in dozens of languages, caught on in the late 90s. Davis, the company's chief content officer in Feldman, noted that Hasbro has already seen significant success in Hollywood with the Transformers and Ouija franchises. Daniel Persitz and Devin Klieger wrote the spec that was sold to TWC. Quote, we think that this can resonate as a four-quadrant film, end quote, Davis said. Quote, it can't just buy a 40-minute commercial, end quote. There's no director attached to the project as of yet, but Feldman evoked a laugh by equipping, quote, we're out to David Fincher. End all quotes there. Um, I really don't know about comparing the successes of Transformers and Ouija to a Furby. I'm surprised they didn't say, like, trolls. But, yeah, um, are you, I know you're excited about this. I'm waiting yes. for the porn version. Please, please hear, please hear the utter excitement that is my voice. Um, I, yeah, I have no idea what they're thinking. Truly, I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> I, I have, I have no other comment besides that. All right. Well, this is my last piece of news here uh, from theguardian.com by way of Alan Evans. China passes law to ensure films, quote, serve the people and socialism, end quote. Yes, first law governing the country's film industry targets box office fraud and says filmmakers must have excellent moral integrity. China has passed a law that bans film content deemed harmful to the, quote, dignity, honor, and interests, end quote, of the country. It also encourages the promotion of, quote, socialist core values, end quote. Uh, let's see here. The new laws govern the promotion of the film industry and were approved by the National People's Congress Standing Committee at a meeting in Beijing. Uh, it forbids content that stirs up opposition to the law or constitution, harms national unity, sovereignty, or territory territorial integrity exposes national secrets harms chinese security dignity honor or interests or spreads terrorism or extremism also banned are subjects that quote defame the people's excellent cultural traditions end quote uh incite ethnic hatred or discrimination or destroy ethnic unity and this is of course um along the the lines of saying that uh, actors and filmmakers employed in the industry should have, quote, excellent moral integrity and, quote, self-discipline, end quote. Uh, for, 
Jinhua said. Um, and, like, for example, Brad Pitt angered authorities in China when he appeared in the film Seven Years in Tibet because the Communist Party fiercely criticizes governments and public figures who have expressed sympathy for the Dalai Lama. Um, what do you think there, Tim? Do you think this is just kind of like backroom dealings with Hollywood so that China will not become the number one market faster? <laughs> like maybe, maybe, uh, we'll set them up with like really good deals on streaming rights and stuff like that. Um, and really cool production assistance and things of that nature. And then they don't, they don't get to become the number one territory for movie watching for like two more years instead of eight more months. Well, the Asian territories, they already have a lot of restrictions. Uh, take Ghostbusters, for example. Sony had a hard time distributing Ghostbusters in Asia because it features ghosts in spirits. And the Asian markets, they don't, they don't believe in spirits in films. Like, they think that's too, uh, that, that's too sacred. So, and, and, and it should not be a form of entertainment, for example. I'm so totally paraphrasing that, uh, but that's kind of what what they're going for with that with that rule. So they they have a lot of rules kind of like that. They're a little funky. That to us it seems super weird and, and kind of dumb uh, and very limiting. And also another thing in Asia, I, I don't know if it's in China, but I know in Japan that most movies, especially American movies, they have to be in IMAX 3D because most of their theaters over there are either large format screens uh, or IMAX and in 3D. So that's why in the U.S. We, we've been seeing this crazy push for three, uh, for 3D for so many different movies. You know, now it's not just big uh, CGI movies, but movies like Life of Pi, for example, the upcoming Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. I mean, we're, we're, we're gearing up to start making dramas that are going to be shot in 3D. So they will have a wider release in Asia. And I'm not saying that all they have are those theaters over there. Obviously, 2D movies get shown over there, but the movies that get the higher billing, that get the most screens are ones that are premium format. So, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's kind of silly, but I, I don't really, I know you're kidding, but I, I don't think that, I, I think if anything, that would be one deal Hollywood would not make with China. All right, well, that is my news, sir. Bring us home on the news. All righty, my last two pieces of news. Going back to November 5th of 2015, I'm going to read a little bit of David Robb's article from Deadline Hollywood. This ties into the article that I'm going to, the more current article that I like to talk about. Ellie's long holiday filming restrictions aren't shared anywhere else, and it says this. Holiday filming restrictions in L.A., where wide swaths of the city will be off-limits to filmmakers for six weeks in November and December, stand in stark contrast to the permitting rules in other cities around the country. As reported here Wednesday, L.A.'s citywide restrictions will begin November 23rd and remain in effect through January 2nd, with lane closures, street closures, and street parking to be sharply curtailed in all commercial and retail areas of the city. Film L.A., the city's film permit office, is recommending that filmmakers plan their location shoots there after 9 p.m. during those 41 days, which is 11% of the year. 
saying, quote, Wow, that's a long time, end quote, a film office official in Miami said, where it's even okay to shoot on Christmas Day. Quote, I'm glad we don't have that, end quote. Dallas Film Commissioner Janice Berkland said with a laugh, saying, quote, That would be a killer, end quote, she said. There are no filming restrictions at all during the holidays in her city. In New York City, the only restrictions are in Midtown, where filmmakers will be allowed to shoot only on one side of the street between 23rd and 66th streets from Thanksgiving to New Year. In Vancouver, where so many U.S. films are shot, no permits are issued during the Christmas break. When the film offices closes down this year, that's about 10 days, in New Orleans, another busy production hub, There are no specific restrictions, though a film office official there said productions that require major street closures in the business district and the French Quarter might not get approved during the busy holiday shopping season for the 30 days between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, And the article goes on from there. So what do you gain from that? Rhetorical question. What you gain from what I just read is that, you know, L.A. has some strict holiday filming days, you know, where, where you cannot film anywhere because of the traffic that slash the fear of traffic. I mean, you'd figure LA, we would be used to this traffic and it's not like they're going to be taking up every single street, you know, how dare they during Christmas if they want to shoot though. I can't really think of many productions that would want to shoot on Christmas day or even Christmas Eve, but even all these other cities, even Dallas, Uh, The Texas Film Commission, New Orleans, Vancouver, they think this is preposterous. Well, flash forward to two days ago, November 7th, another article by David Robb, LA's Hollywood filming restrictions are longest in the country and getting longer. That's right. It's gotten worse. Holiday filming restrictions in L.A., which already were the longest in the country, just got longer. This year's annual restrictions on filming in L.A.'s commercial districts will last for 43 days, two days longer than in 2015. Oof, two days. Last year, the restrictions ran from November 23rd to January 2nd, and they'll start on November 21st this year, again on the Monday of Thanksgiving week saying, quote, in an effort to reduce the impacts of construction, events, and filming to businesses and merchants that rely on revenue generated during the holiday season, the city of L.A. implements a relaxation of production activity in commercial districts from November 21st through January 2nd of 2017, and, quote, according to Film L.A., the city's film permit office, quote, filming activity including lane closures, street closures, and street parking will be limited in all commercial retail areas of the city during this time period, and all quotes there. Uh, and it does go on to say, the article does go on to say that Film L.A. mentioned that uh, individual filming requests will be evaluated and handled on a case-by-case basis. Um, I find this kind of interesting because L.A., we know L.A., it is the hub of, of movies, of industry, but it's also a very cultural place as well. It's kind of funny, like, especially me, who's here for the movie industry, I, I mean... I, 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 of course, know of the culture. I go to a lot of these places downtown, a lot of these retail shops and street merchants that uh, that, that uh, this article talks about. I've explored them. And it, it's amazing to me because parking there is so limited. Unless you want to park in a garage four blocks away and pay 25 bucks, 
there's not a whole lot of street parking. And some of these productions, depending on how big it is, if they're doing a big car chase scene, they're going to take up blocks and blocks of downtown space. What do you think, Matt? Do you think that because it's Hollywood, because it's the movie industry, there shouldn't really be any restrictions? Or do you sympathize with these retailers and street merchants that are trying to do business down there? Well, yeah, I mean... I I I've got to side on the merchants, um, side on the side with the merchants. There we go. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, and, and the reason why is because while they they might get certain contractual uh, benefits or something, you know, hey, we'll give your shop a couple thousand dollars because we're going to be in the way and that guy, you know, that's not something that gets worked out all the time. That's not. Um, uh, where things are at, not to mention when you already have construction stuff like cities actually have to do that. If cities are going to be um, curtailing your ability to do business, then they have to work that into the cost of building things. So, you know, it goes to show that if you're shutting down a city block to film something, then, you know, you've got it's It's not just the city you need to pay. But um, whether or not they should get paid, whatever, blah, 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 or it should be long. I don't know. I think that, um, with, with all of those wonderful special effects, they're so easy to use now. Um, I wish you could see my air quotes there. Yeah. I think that the merchants and, uh, people who are trying to shop, people who are trying to use the, uh, use the traffic and stuff. Yeah. I think that they should be um taken care of i think that especially with the idea that we've got tons of different cities out there with lots of different tax credit situations and tax havens uh we've got other areas of cities and stuff that can um model or mock up another type of city you know you don't need to be doing it in la honestly i think that would also give a really good reason to recreate certain backlot um areas and stuff not because you're going to have like the old style universal backlot so that nothing is done on location anymore but i think that since you're already there hey why not make you know one city block right um and then you can have that all year round and do what you need to do so it is what it is i guess but i would definitely say the little people need to be taken care of the and little people the little people the plebs <laughs> unless they play chess then fuck them that's right my last piece of news i'm gonna keep this short because it is a i don't want to say it's a lengthy uh, article but this guy obviously loves music and he loves 1978 superman via io9.gizmodo.com why the 1978 superman soundtrack works so damn well this is written by evan Narcisse. I was six or seven the first time I saw the 1978 Superman movie, and up until very recently, my response to the film's music has been almost entirely emotional. The effect that the 1978 Williams soundtrack has on me is so strong that I gave Superman Returns a free pass the time I, the first time I saw it. It took a whole other viewing for me to get angry at Brian Singer's empty homage to Richard Donner's super movies. 
To this day, my reaction to these sounds include wet eyes and memories of holding my tattered Superman Mego action figure as a kid. Anytime those horns fire up, I remember the exact angle I held my head up in my seat and not really understanding how the Man of Steel's fantastical fictional nature was made real in front of my eyes. Williams' sonic backdrop was a big part of why I believed a man could fly and is probably my first major musical memory. But that's all nostalgia. The more I've listened to the soundtrack, the more I've appreciated just how it works. It's worth remembering that the Superman movie came out during a time when superhero comics weren't widely regarded as cultural artifacts worthy of appreciation or intellectual discussion. Most grown-ups of the day had watched the 50s Superman TV show as kids. After that, the campy Batman series from 12 years prior was probably the most accessible touchstone for most non-nerd folk, and you can see some of the tonality in the 1978 Superman. I think Williams' score is a triumph, because it communicates the myriad ways that Superman is supposed to feel, for both kids and adults. The music accomplishes that by distilling several key emotional prompts that I'll lay out below. And this is what he does. So he does list these key emotional prompts, and he backs them up with YouTube clips of these tracks. And I'm just going to read one of them, and I want to get your opinion, Matt, because I I think this guy is absolutely right. I I definitely uh, agree with him. So his first key emotional prompt that he wrote was pomp and he said that the stately figure that opens the main musical theme for the 1978 superman movie is reminiscent of royal fanfare a reminder that hey this is the first big superhero we're talking about this is cultural royalty then the marching rhythm comes in a steady repeating foundation which sends the message that superman is a hero you can rely on the bright brass horn Busts that repeatedly soar upward suggest the idea of flight. And the sprightly strings and woodwinds combos stop the whole thing from feeling too self-serious. And then he goes on to other prompts like urgency, humor, uh, yearning, loss, and etc. I think this guy for the most part, has it. I mean, I I really didn't need him to lay it out for me because I pretty much had a good idea of how I felt about this soundtrack. I think for the time, it was amazing. It was just an amazing movie at the time because nobody, nobody saw Superman fly and it actually being pulled off in a believable fashion. I mean, just on top of that, you had this amazing John Williams score and it's perfect. It sets the tone for all of these movies And there's just something about Go Superman, and it makes me excited every time I listen to it. It's very hopeful, it's very spirited, and it's very powerful and moving. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I'm glad that the... um, I'm, I'm just glad that there's someone out there who's willing to actually take the time to break down someone as seminal as john williams with such an iconic score and explain what it is that makes it so awesome and granted i mean it it is subjective but at the same time i think there are objective notes to it and it allows other people to kind of understand oh that's kind of what that is and that's how and then hopefully they can apply that to other movies that they see and find good scores for them because scores are important it's not just about the soundtrack so and that's my news 
Awesome. All right. Well, then we will go directly from the news to... Thirty Square. All right, and this time on Three Squared, we are going to be talking about a forgotten actress and three examples of their work. Now again, uh, these are the, the actresses we have chosen. Are uh, it you know it could be they did something wrong, um, or people just didn't like them, or they had like some big huge thing and then they just faded. Whatever. Um, in this particular example, I am going with Helen Slater. Yes, Helen Slater. So Helen Slater. Um, she's an American actress and singer, and basically she kind of like broke out in the, um, in the whole, I guess, pop culture, uh, pantheon back in 1984 when she starred as the titular character in Supergirl. And, um, now the movie in and of itself is, uh, let's just say it's not that good. But um, it was something that was willing to kind of uh, branch out into the Superman universe and everything and also give kind of an idea of what it was like to be someone else who's from Krypton so you can kind of expand the mythos. Um, And so she burst on the scene from there, but pretty much after 1991 or so, she kind of fell off the face of the planet and in terms of acting and whatnot. Now she's made several appearances and stuff since then, but her acting on the whole wasn't bad. So I'm not sure if it was just, she was just too iconic in that regard, or if it was just a combination of not doing a whole lot of great movies, or if maybe she's just, you know, kind of found success uh, in other back channels. Now, I do know that um, she started doing stuff post-2000 where she was doing um, music and stuff. She was singing and doing her own piano playing and stuff like that. Um, But, yeah, so I wanted to talk about Helen Slater. And the three movies I have chosen are... 1984 Supergirl, because while I don't think that the movie has held up at all, and truth be told, wasn't really a fantastic movie to begin with, when you're a kid and all you're into is Superman, then you want anything and everything that is also related to Superman. And does that mean Supergirl? Then let's do it. And when Supergirl looks like Supergirl looks... So that's what I'm talking about, okay? Now, um... I, I really, really dug this particular um, movie mainly because I liked how they worked Supergirl into the mythos without having to worry about having Superman. They gave her her own adventure and established her as a cousin, which was fantastic. Um, but you also have the likes of Mio Farah in this movie, uh, Faye Dunaway, Peter O'Toole as well. So, uh, you know, it's not like you don't have... Uh, a bunch of bigger names, or at least recognizable names of the day. Again, I can't stress enough that this movie definitely hasn't aged well, and really wasn't all that well received, but you know what? Some people like kitsch, 
if you if you like kitsch, you're gonna like this movie. So I still think it's important because that's what launched her. Next up, though, is from 1985, the American drama The Legend of Billie Jean, and this is honestly, um, it was think of it as like a, a, an 80s, at least for the time, like an 80s current. Uh, a retelling of kind of the ideas and themes behind Joan of Arc. And you see this young girl who's basically thrust into the limelight in a way that she doesn't really want to be. But at the same time, um, through her rebelliousness and in some cases just outright recklessness, um, she sets off a firestorm of underground support and people... Uh, and she just kind of catches the spirit of America, more or less, in, in the film as the character. So it's a really interesting movie. Um, I would say that it'd probably be in the neighborhood of three, between three and a three and a half star movie, even today. Um, whether or not it's aged well, I think would be debatable. But it's a really, really interesting story. And it's definitely been, act it's pretty darn well acted, uh, considering the number of kid actors that are in it as well. But yeah, this was uh, Helen Slater's breakaway after Supergirl. Definitely a good flick. I would check it out. Last but not least, though, for me would be City Slickers, 1991's Western comedy film. Yes, do you remember that one? Uh, I hope Billy Crystal, Daniel Stern, Bruno Kirby, and of course Jack Palance, um, or Palance depending on how you want to say that. And then uh, Helen Slater actually had a minor role in this movie, but she is um, in in the film uh, smattered throughout. And she plays one of the drivers with um, Mitch and Phil and Ed, Billy Crystal, Daniel Stern, Bruno Kirby, respectively. And kind of gets to be there for, all the mis for most of the misadventures that they have when they're doing their two-week cattle drive. Um, she does a really good job. I think it's, it's very small. It's a smaller role. It's understated, uh, but it's not underplayed. And I think it really goes to show that, the, that, that she had acting chops. And yet this is pretty much the last major film that she does. Like period. Um, she kind of drops off the face of the planet, uh, eventually does some TV and stuff like that. She comes back for some Smallville stuff. Um, really kind of, interesting how they you know how she played up with that but at the same time the movie in and of itself is fantastic and her role in it was good um i just wish that uh we had gotten to see more of her between 91 and say even even 2005 in terms of movies so uh helen slater the original supergirl uh, and my movies are 1984's uh, Supergirl, 1985's The Legend of Billie Jean, and 1991's City Slickers. What do you got there for us, Tim? My pick is Meg Foster. She was born in 1948 in Reading, Pennsylvania. Does that give it away yet? Probably not. Uh, you might have seen her recently in a number of B, C, and D movies, such as Three Days in August... Well, I was about to say 31. Well, I guess 31 is a B movie, the Rob Zombie movie that we reviewed pretty recently. Uh, she's done loads of TV recently. She was in Pretty Little Liars, The Originals, a show called Ravenswood from some years ago. She was also in The Lords of Salem. I think she played a witch in that one. That was the other uh, Rob Zombie film that he made a few years back. 
I was always a fan of hers in the 80s, because that's when she became kind of semi-not popular, but noticeable in the 80s. That's whenever I was able to pick her out in movies. And so when we were watching 31, I didn't really recognize her at all. She's aged, she looks a little bit different, but something was very eye-catching about her, and, and was just kind of like calling to me. And I really didn't think about it until I was watching They Live, Last week, I bought the collector's edition from Shout Factory, and I was watching it, and it's like, holy fuck, I forgot she was in this movie, and that was totally her in 31. That is Meg Foster. What was really calling out to me were her eyes. That's like the one feature that everybody remembers about her, because she has these incredibly piercing pale blue eyes. They also they kind of look like an emerald green to some people, but really they're like this beautiful crystal blue eyes. And if you've seen They Live, her skin tone's a little bit darker, and her hair is pulled back throughout most of the movie. Man, her eyes just haunting. And many of the movies that she's in, when she's playing the villain, which I think she kind of got typecast as the mysterious woman or the bad guy because of her her uh, her eyes. Critics would either call her eyes like enchanting and majestic and beautiful and wonderful, while others would call them haunting and devastating to look at. And I'm not quoting there, but something that, that just kind of haunts you when you look at them, but you just can't look away from it. And that's what really attracted me about her. I really wanted to talk about her because she was a woman that I recognized throughout various films from the 80s. Now she's doing more genre films, or even these genre TV shows like The Originals, which I think is about vampires or something like that. She got her start in the late 60s doing TV shows, and you might have recognized her in an episode of Bonanza from 1971. Uh, She was in a couple episodes of The Mod Squad, Barnaby Jones, The Six Million Dollar Man, so, I mean, literally, if you go through her entire IMD page, the bottom, like, maybe 50 appearances were all in different TV shows. And it wasn't until really the late 70s when her movie career started cooking. I believe in 1978, she did a movie called A Different Story, and then she ended up doing a miniseries, The Scarlet Letter. And all this kind of built up to this one movie, that, which is my first pick. It was her ticket to all these other films and mild stardom. And that movie was from 1981, and it is entitled Ticket to Heaven. Um, and it is about a religious cult that uses like starvation and brainwashing and all these horrible, ridiculous things that religious cults apparently do to create this this family. I'm using air quotes with that. To create this really strange family. Well, you know, just kind of like how cool. I'm doing a horrible job of doing it, explaining this. Uh, but that's kind of the gist of the movie. Meg Foster in this movie, Ticket to Heaven, she played the cult leader named Ingrid. And with her eyes, it was just absolutely creepy and just not i don't want to necessarily say that she was stoic but she pulls off the role wonderfully and it's a very interesting movie it's not a great movie but if you're into like these cult type of movies and you want to see a pretty damn good performance by this woman 
do check out Ticket to Heaven. But I'll tell you, there is one person that did find her performance to be uh, something to talk about, and he actually hired her to appear in his 1988 film They Live, and that director was John Carpenter. And They Live was a movie that came out of the Reagan era. Um, It's a sci-fi film with heavy kind of political undertones to it. Uh, It is the movie that stars Roddy Piper as the drifter who comes across these sunglasses that when he puts them on he's able to see these aliens that are kind of taken over los angeles basically in the movie as a quick rundown the aliens are the reagan republicans trying to control the media and control the flow of money so that they stay in power it is a great movie i just rewatched it twice this past week and what i love about this movie is that The story really doesn't kick in until about 35 minutes into the film. And the girl, Meg Foster, she doesn't even appear until about like 40, 45 minutes into this hour and a half movie. And she only appears in maybe three different scenes. But every scene she's in, you know that something is off about her. Because you have to keep in mind, you can only see these aliens if you have these glasses on. But it doesn't necessarily mean that only aliens are the bad guys. And, you know, she's set up as the love interest. And if you've never seen this movie before, spoiler alert, you know, please mute the audio for 10 or 15 seconds because I am going to spoil this part of the movie and it's a doozy uh, if you're not expecting it. But it turns out that she is in cahoots with the bad guys and she royally screws over Roddy Piper's character at the end. And... What really gives away her character are those eyes, but you really don't make anything of it that she's an alien or she's an alien sympathizer. And it's just a wonderful performance because it's not necessarily her performance, her uh, delivery of dialogue, but it's her presence. And to me, that is a sign of a good actor as to if you can see them, if they're taking up space in the room, but what they are doing is noticeable. Their subtleties are noticeable. And that's what I appreciated about her because Roddy Piper made the movie, Keith David made the movie, but it was also Meg Foster as well. So do check out They Live. And lastly, a movie that I'm pretty sure most of us have heard about. It is the, I, I would guess it's a cult classic movie now, Masters of the Universe from 1987. This is the film starring Dolph Lundgren, Frank Langella, and Meg Foster, directed by Gary Goddard. And I think we all know what the story of Master of the Uni- or Masters of the Universe is, about He-Man, who is on a quest to battle his and defeat his arch-nemesis, Lord Skeletor, played by Frank Langella in this film. And Meg Foster plays a bad guy again. She is Evil Lynn. She is the woman wearing green. She's the one that's wearing like this weird golden crown thing that kind of arrows down on her forehead. She has the, uh, the, the pale face, the red lipstick, and the sexy smoky eyes shadow look going. But those eyes really stand out in this film especially maybe not as much as as they live but it definitely gives her that evil presence and that's what i really like about her and i really do hope you guys if you're not familiar with her or these movies please go and check them out because they're entertaining movies but they i think 
embody what makes her such an angelic actress to watch on screen. Again, my choice was Meg Foster, and my three picks of her movies were Ticket to Heaven from 1981, Masters of the Universe from 1987, and John Carpenter's They Live from 1988. Right on, right on. Okay, next week we are going to be covering the 1992 film Bob Roberts for Did It Age Well? And without further ado, I believe it is time for the movies, is it not, sir? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's... The Movies! week's movies are Doctor Strange and Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? Uh, how about the Strange D? Okay, sounds good. Doctor Strange. This is uh, the 2016 American superhero film. And of course, this features the Marvel comic character of the same name. And it's... Uh, Directed by Scott Derrickson, stars Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Chiwetel Ijefor, Rachel McAdams, Benedict Wong, Michael Stuhlbarg, Benjamin Bratt, Scott Adkins, Mads Milkison, and Tilda Swan- uh, Swinton. And uh, basically, we've got... Uh, w- w- this tells the story of... Uh, Doctor Strange, uh, Stephen Strange, as it were. And... A very, very house-like kind of a doctor, extremely cocky and well-deserved of his cockiness. There's no, there's no denying his brilliance. Who is forced to kind of look into alternative medicines uh, due to damaging his hands. You know, he can't be a world-famous surgeon if he can't do surgery. Um, and thus he is then introduced to, um the uh the the basically the mystic arts as it were and so where you have uh the avengers and and this is what i thought made this movie so brilliant is that they don't just walk in and expect you to go ooh look magic yeah right um but what they say is is like okay everybody acknowledges that there is the physical you've got this metaphysical realm and that's where you see that we you know we've had the aliens come down, right? You're having to deal with uh, Thor, who even though it's kind of a goddess kind of a thing, this is really just a being from another part of the universe, etc. Uh, but at the same time, we've got the Avengers uh, who are there to help us. We've got all these, you know, superheroes who run about and help maintain the world as we know it, and you know, save us from all those threats. Well. Much as there is the physical world, we also have the spiritual realm. And regardless of what you subscribe to in the realm of the uh, spiritual, there are beings that that's where they do their bidding and stuff, where, where we would see that as kind of a spiritual thing in nature. And so that's what this aspect of the universe that's being dealt with is and that's where Doctor Strange fits in in terms of the mystic arts and all that kind of stuff. So they create a clear delineation. 
And that's what makes this movie work because they don't ask you to sit there and go, look, you know, this is all about what's happening in the world. And, oh, look at all this. Nope. Nope. The world is its own thing. The spiritual realm is its own thing. And for our Marvel universe, this is how the spiritual realm works. And that's why the things that we do to interact with this, people would consider spells or it would look like magic. So they create a very simple construct, much like the original Matrix movie did, and then they adhere to the rules that they set in it. Um, and it's even fun because they adhere to the rules that they set in it, but they also adhere to those rules by breaking them. Ooh, irony. It's fantastic. Um, and this movie works because of that. So, and of course, Benedict Cumberbatch definitely does a fantastic job. But you know what? So does Tilda Swinton. Um, and so does Benedict Wong. So does, uh, Chiwetel Ajifor. Um, it, everybody just does an amazing job in terms of their acting in terms of bringing to their bringing their character um and presenting it in such a way that you believe that it exists in this universe now i would say interestingly though that the weak link is actually rachel mcadams it's not that she's a bad actress or anything um i just think that her character is kind of like it's supposed to be the hinge okay it's supposed to be the hinge that keeps the door on the real world versus the spiritual world and that's kind of the way that you have um Bennett Cumberbatch as, as Doctor Strange going back and forth and so she just feels like the character itself kind of feels like underused and more like a plot device in and of itself um aside from some standard superhero tropes that that end up kind of happening um it was really like seeing a superhero version of house in the supernatural realm and it's very very enjoyable um what i worry though is i don't know how well this will carry beyond this movie because i think people as much as they enjoy the idea behind the character and as much as they enjoyed what they saw I think we'll very quickly come to to realize that the that in getting more of the same, um, they could just watch the movie they already saw. So I don't know where this movie's going to go from here. Um, but it does a really good job. It's got kind of like a very Inception esque feel to it, which is really cool. And yet at the same time, um, decent acting. Uh, you know, the, a, a few of the Marvel pitfalls happen in terms of plot development, but they they told such a just a fantastic story and with such great actors and actresses that you cannot help but enjoy this movie a lot. Four out of five stars for me. Take it away, Tim. I thought this was good. I think this might be my my third favorite Marvel movie, and that would be after... Guardians of the Galaxy and the first Iron Man, uh, but I, I really can't think of it. maybe maybe Captain America. I I, I can't think right now, but it, it, it's up there. But I do think this movie failed on a couple levels, and I think the real uh, my my knock against this movie, though I thought I think the weak link of this movie was its script, 
because I didn't think it was funny. I think it was trying to be funny for the sake of being funny. Like, the whole thing about this guy named Wong and Doctor uh, Doctor Strange is asking him, like, your name is just Wong, like, Beyonce, like, Prince, and just starts naming all these people. And then, of course, at the end of the movie, this Wong guy listens to Beyonce's single ladies and, oh, the joke comes around full circle. But it's shit that we've seen before in many other Marvel flicks, especially. Like, we've seen the whole, uh, you know, the whole tough guy listening to a throwback song. Uh, even like in Gardens of the Galaxy when he's listening to one of uh, Star-Lord's classic songs. And I'm not saying Beyonce's Single Ladies is a throwback song, but it did come out about eight years ago, and it has relatively been well-known for quite some time. So I guess it's considered a more modern throwback. But we've seen stuff like that before, and this movie, when it's trying to be funny, is littered with jokes like that. And to me... When the movie is smart, and when the dialogue does get into the realms, and, you know, and I I think it's trying to be a little too confusing, maybe not trying to be, but they just kind of keep explaining the same thing over and over again, and I could have missed something, but it just felt a little too much like filler, but whenever they're doing that incredibly well, and it's very, it's, it's engaging, it's kind of sad to see this thrown in comedy you know like it, and it didn't work and also with the script i don't think this script fit benedict cumberbatch or maybe benedict cumberbatch didn't fit the script i think benedict cumberbatch is a great actor and he had his look was great and i would have loved to have seen him knock this role out of the park but when it came to the cockiness of the character and the humor he just didn't do it for me it just did not work. Uh, I think he was trying to work incredibly hard on his American accent. Um, it could be because I'm used to hearing him as a Brit. I think this is the first time, other than on SNL last weekend, that I actually heard him with a with an American accent. Again, it just didn't work, and, and it was more distracting than anything else. What I was surprised with this film is that it, when it's smart, it's incredibly smart. When it's engaging, it's incredibly get engaging. I like Tilda Swinton's character. I very much like the bad guy, uh, Mads Nicholson. I think it's Mads Nicholson who played the bad guy. I thought he was he was wonderful. I, I loved him, and I, I really do hope his villain returns in other Doctor Strange installments. I loved the special effects, and, and it seemed like a lot of those special effects scenes were envisioned in post-production, and I know you're saying, yeah, of course, you know, special effects, of course, they're really not to come to fruition in, in post-production, man, I mean, come on, what, you know, do, you, or do you know anything about CGI? I do, but another thing I know is that a director... A producer, a storyboard artist, norm usually has a clear understanding of what these special effects will look like, what the environment will look like, and it would be up to the actor to see, to look at these storyboards, look at these artistic renderings, and experience that environment or come up with that environment in his mind. So his it actually looks like he his character is in this environment and experiencing all the weird trippy things that are happening around around him, and I think. For the most part, Benedict Cumberbatch did a good job, but I, I really wanted to see or experience more of the sense of awe and astonishment and astonishment from Doctor Strange in this trippy environment. 
uh, he pulled it off real well. You know, the whole, like, oh, I don't believe you. I don't know what you're talking about. You're just pulling my leg. And then he does some dumb little joke. Oh, I don't believe you. I'm just a cocky asshole. And then it happens, and then it sucks him in. And it's like, wow, he did an awesome job. And that first trip-out scene when she pushes his spirit into the nether world or wherever, that was wonderfully executed. And I love the narration of Tilda Swinton while all that is happening. But it's every other time he goes into that realm. He goes into that other side. And there is no awe. There is no astonishment. It's just him being cocky. It's him trying to overcome his hand problem. You know, and and that's what I really wanted to see more of. I keep hearing people comparing this movie to Inception. Oh, this is the next Inception. This movie is, is as smart as Inception. This is Inception this, Inception this. But it's not. What made Inception an amazing movie, it helped that it was two and a half hours long, but there was that sense of amazement. I mean, when they went into the Inception and all that trippy stuff with the buildings folding over on top of each other, it felt like I was experiencing it or or going through the motions alongside, I forget the young young woman who was in the movie. I'm blanking on her name right now. Juno, I guess. When she's experiencing it for the first time. And I think Doctor Strange would have benefited so much from that because this movie has an amazing environment. Astonishing things happen. I just wanted to experience it. I wanted to, I wanted to be there right next to the character. That's what I wanted to see more of. The experience. The awe. The astonishment. And that's really all... I have to say about this movie, I think it's good. Uh, Again, it's top three, top four Marvel Disney movie. (laughs) So for Doctor Strange, I am landing on 3.75 out of 5. I very much enjoyed it. I just can't say that I loved it. Fair enough. All right. Well, then that brings us to Hacksaw Ridge, 2016 biographical war film directed by Mel Gibson. And it stars Andrew Garfield, Sam Worthington, Luke Bracey, Teresa Palmer, Hugo Weaving, Rachel Griffiths, and Vince Vaughn. Yes, that Vince Vaughn, the guy that I was just bagging on for being a part of the Psycho remake. I guess it prepped him for his role as the, as the, uh, irascible taciturn sarge right your good old recalcitrant hero all right so uh this of course is uh desmond doss it's it's a biographical uh pick about desmond doss and uh his life leading up to the events in the pacific where uh the uh, where you have a whole bunch of men in the army who are trying to actually take a, a specific part of Okinawa um, called Hack, that they refer to as Hacksaw Ridge in order to hold uh, the island and then thus have a base with which they could keep an eye on Japan and hopefully uh, conquer it as well. Desmond Doss, of course, is uh, a conscientious objector. And while he definitely does not believe in killing, he does believe that he has an obligation to serve his country and wants to do so as a combat medic. He wants to save the guys on the field. So that's his story and, of course, his amazing heroic efforts that uh, came as a result of him being there. Right place, right time. Um, this movie 
for me is damn near flawless. Now, I remember when I saw the trailer and Tim and I had quite the laugh at Andrew Garfield's accent. And while I certainly um, still feel like it was hokey, um, I very quickly after about the first say seven to 12 minutes that he's really in character and going through the role, you, you begin to understand that it's actually for me understated brilliance. And what it is, is that it's designed to be somewhat hokey because he is just, he's playing a man who was nothing but sincere, who was nothing but um, true and faithful and ardent in his beliefs and in his passions and what he wanted to do and what he was willing to do to get what he wanted. And at the same time, he is kind of a man apart, even with his own, with, within his own time period. And it's, and it's kind of demonstrated even with his, with the Southern accent. But the thing is, is that that earnestness is also something that was truer of that period than it is today. That's not to say that there aren't good people and that they're not heroes and um, that, you know, that people can't aspire to do and be more or that people in their sincerity can still be kind of corny. It's just that it's, it is that blend of that understated elegance, that corniness, that, that hokiness, and yet, because it is done in such a sincere way, you you buy in. And I think that's something that is just amazing that Gibson was able to pull out of Garfield's performance. It's just absolutely fantastic because it's noted several times how hokey he is and how um, corny he is. And yet, at the same time, he doesn't care. You know, he just accepts it as it is and and moves forward. Um, and so that's and that's kind of the tone that that you, that that Gibson has set. You get this juxtaposition, and yet it's it's enough that you notice it, but still subtle enough that it's not jarring and taking you out of the setting of the film. Right? It's no longer bringing you back to reality. Going, oh my gosh, that it's so annoying. And that's the rest of the movie as well. The whole movie fits into that narrative. There are certain things that are done to um, put a focus on what is happening that is meant to be jarring enough that you know it's there, that you see it and recognize it for what it is, but not enough that it breaks the illusion of the film. And that's all the way down to the violence that you see. It's down to the way that Hugo Weaving portrays the father, the alcoholic father and of Desmond and his brother. And the thing is, is that you're kind of like, really? It just seems kind of like, you know, too easy. It's, it's too by the numbers and stuff. Like there's a, there's a moment when, um, Hugo Weaving is, is, uh, again, he's playing Desmond's, he's playing Desmond's father, shows up in his World War One uniform to save his son from a court martial, whatever. And while it more than likely didn't go down like that, right? It's just hokey enough that you're like, 
really, but it's just earnest enough that you buy it, that you, it doesn't sit there and go, come on. And it works for the narrative because it allows it to, it, it allows it to brilliantly keep Garfield in play, but allow the strength of the characters around him to keep the story afloat. It's just expertly crafted. I'm, I mean, there's just no way that it can't be, uh, that, that you can't say that it's not. I, for one, found no, no true flaws worth mentioning because I think a lot of the people who might, um, denigrate the film or whatever will do so on those merits. We'll be like, come on, it's a little too hokey. But at the same time, it's not because, because, well, because of the reasons that I just said, it works in the context of the film. It works in the context of the time period of the film. But at the same time, it's juxtaposed against the harsh, cold realities of the situation and the things that those men went through. Um, Vince Vaughn was an absolute surprise. I saw him walk in and I didn't know what to think. And yet he starts talking and and I almost was like, are, are we really doing this? Are we... Are we and yet, somehow, he fucking pulls it off. I don't even know what the fuck happened. I don't know that I would have made that same decision. Um, I don't know that, even now, I don't know that he was necessarily the best choice for that role. But I'll give it to the man. He did a damn good job at it. Um, for me, five stars all the way. Please go see this movie. This is a complete return to form for Gibson. Um, so glad he's back. Uh, Garfield did an absolutely phenomenal job. Uh, I, I don't know that it was necessarily Oscar worthy, but I still believe he did just an absolutely phenomenal job. And I would be shocked, um, if this doesn't at least get serious Oscar contention for best picture. Um, I know there's going to be awards for it and like cinematography and, um, uh, maybe special effects to a certain degree or, sound editing or whatever because of all the battle stuff but i really feel this is a strong contender for best picture um five stars for me bring us home there tim it's a very good movie and it's a welcome return from mel gibson a return to form well i guess i couldn't really say a return to form since every movie he's made is actually really good apocalypto i think being my all-time favorite but I think this movie might actually be my least favorite of his uh, of his directing films, uh, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, he, it's going up against Braveheart and Apocalypto. Uh, this one I thought felt a little cheesy, and I'm not even talking about Garfield's accent or you know the, the voice he uses, because that's exact. That's pretty much how the guy sounds. In real life, or sounded in real life, and maybe even worse than Andrew Garfield's version of his accent. So I thought Andrew Garfield pulled it off, and I agree with what the earnestness that Matt was talking about that kind of shrouded the entire movie. Uh, that's what really, I thought, held the movie together and made the movie actually pull itself off. Pull itself off. Uh, that sounded a little not right. <laughs> and I think that that's what actually helped the movie uh, work as a whole. Um, I thought all the performances were very good, uh, not only Andrew Garfield, but Hugo Weaving and all the other men he interacts with, including Vince Vaughn. I thought the story was incredibly well thought out and well produced. 
or, or I guess it should say also well adapted. It's a very entertaining World War II movie as well. I, I also really like the idea of how the movie kind of shows you how different World War II was from World War One by introducing his father, the World War One veteran, and how all of his friends died. And that's the reason why he doesn't want his sons to go and fight. And that's also the reason why apparently, you know, he's an abusive, not only an abusive father, but an abusive husband as well. Even Hugo Weaving has this well-rounded, nicely put-together character. But I would have to say the the only knock, which is, which is, to me, it's a big knock, and that's why I give this movie 4.25 out of 5, was that I thought the religious undertones was a little too much for me. I guess it's a moral standpoint. I just really don't get the guy. I mean, he was surrounded by his buddies getting shot, getting blown up. There is a, there's a part in the movie where he sees one of his friends, his fellow brother, I guess, just about to get gunned down by all these Japs. And there's a gun right next to him, and he doesn't do anything. And that just kind of bothered me. And I really didn't know what to make of the movie at that time. And of course, as the battle goes on, you actually see him or experience him saving all these other lives. But for a while, I thought the movie was just going to end up with with that first kind of raid, you know, and that's it. I thought that was his story and I was going to be super let down, but there's actually more to it. But it's really, it's the moral issue for me, his moral stance. And I think the moral stance of the movie uh, itself. Like, I couldn't tell if the movie was, in its way, was supporting his religious belief um, or his uh, religious morals, which is totally fine, but it felt like it was solely supporting that mindset or that belief. And I thought that the movie would have benefited more to where if it was more subjective. And that was my only deal. I love Mel Gibson. I love war movies. And I love very touching heroic films uh, or stories about people like this character or this man. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, I'm not saying this because I hate movies like this. It's just I felt that the movie was being a little too subjective with how it was wanting to tell its story or the story. So that's why I give Hacksaw Ridge 4.25 out of 5. Again, this very well could be another one where I see it a second time and I give it a higher rating. But I'm going to stand with 4.25 right now. All right, well, that does complete the movies for this week. Next week's movies are Arrival and Deep Water Horizon. And I believe, without further ado, we are now ready for the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can, of course, follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio or even track us down on SoundCloud now. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Hugo Weaving, I get to say this. I think I'm a bit of a dreamer. I don't like the reality of life to impinge much on my life. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. 
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.